How does ISIS basically say, we are gonna establish a cryptographic governance hierarchy that would, for example, if ISIS had any Bitcoins, they probably should have, but I'm guessing they didn't. You know, um, maybe, maybe, you know what? Maybe Satoshi is ISIS, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, wouldn't that be amazing? All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs really. They're really special to me and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Curtis. So I'm gonna start by giving you an easy one. I'll, I'll give you a little layup to kick things off. So since 2013, you've written about what you call the bubble theory of money. Let's just for the audience recapitulate for everyone watching and listening this bubble theory of money. I think the best way to ask it is just what, according to your perspective, Curtis, what is money? Um, well, actually, the first time I wrote about this was um, in um, for a little site before my blog in uh, 2005. And um, so at the time, really, I was thinking about the age-old um, problem of the Austrian theory of money, um, which is really first elucidated by Karl Menger, which is the question of why certain kinds of goods seem to have anomalous value. Uh, people, of course, often focus on the material utility of the classic, you know, sort of pre-modern monetary standards of precious metals. Um, and they're like, oh, it's valuable. But in fact, these, these goods are grossly overvalued considering they're, um, if you analyze them as, as simply as commodities, they don't make sense. They ha you see an enormous stock of these commodities and, um, and that stock keeps being accumulated instead of drawn down and the price is wildly disproportionate to the demand for industrial use of these goods. Um, so there's obviously something sort of interesting going on here. And the simplest way to think about it is that money is essentially a store of value. It's a medium of savings. It's a way that you move purchasing power from the present into the future. Even the presence of financial instruments like bonds don't really change the need to physically shift purchasing power from the present to the future. Even if you lend, even if you lend money to be returned in the future, you're lending it to someone who therefore is holding money. So lending abstractly should not change the demand for money. So there's always a demand for some such good. And when you look at the um, sort of game theory of the demand for this good, which is sort of uses some concepts that the classical Austrians didn't really have at hand, um, you see that um, you're basically looking at a coordination problem because you have to standardize there. You have to standardize on the, on, on, some cur some store of value which is going to be overvalued and so you have at least one good that has to be overvalued in an economy but um if you have more than one that's an unstable competition 
Whereas to have exactly one, and you know, there can be only one, as they used to say in the movie Highlander, a great, great, great '80s movie. Uh, the um, so the stable state of the system, just very, very abstractly, is a state in which there is one um, dominant money. And so, what happens when that? standard is created or when standards change, which is a very, you know, sort of cataclysmic financial event. Um, this, of course, is the, you know, the Bitcoin hypermonetization, Bitcoin maximalism, essentially theory. What happens when one of these standards is created is basically people move their savings into this good. And if this good is an appropriate money, um, appreciating its price will not substantially appreciate its supply, which is obviously very important, um, and, and violate it a little bit in the case of the precious metals. I mean, when the gold price goes up, it increases gold mining a little bit, but the amount of newly mined gold is still quite small compared to the world gold stock. And um, so what will happen is that basically people will buy this good up in sort of exactly the same way as GameStop stock was bought up um, last year. And so when something goes up because everyone is buying in um, and not because it has any intrinsic value or utility, that looks like a bubble. It's in fact the same thing as a bubble. And so when we look at a at, you know, sort of a financial bubble, we can see sort of an attempt to re-standardize a money. And that attempt is sort of if the bubble pops, you know, and there are there are various ways that certainly Bitcoin could in theory pop. If the bubble pops, it looks like this ridiculous tulip scam all over again. If it goes to completion, it looks like, you know, you bought into you know, this incredible thing, you know, very early. And so, you know, the, the, the general cause for sort of a, an intrinsic demand to re-standardize money today is basically monetary dilution. And when I say monetary dilution, most people will sort of define the stock of money in dollars using very narrow instruments like M0, M1. Uh, I prefer to basically describe the stock of dollars as the total net worth in dollars of all people holding dollars and dollar-denominated financial instruments and financed assets. And that's essentially defining the dollar supply as the sum of personal net worth, which is a statistic, I don't know how accurate it is, it's a statistic that you know the Fed keeps. And so when you see personal net worth, I think in like 2021, it may have gone up by, um, or 2020 to 21, it was going up by $20 trillion a year. This is obviously not the stuff that we have is getting $20 trillion more valuable. You know, maybe we have wine and the wine is aging. Um, I don't think that's how it's working. It's basically a sort of um, this way of creating dollars broadly stated when the stock market goes up, everyone feels good. It is no different from printing money and sending it primarily to rich people. 
And so what you're doing, you know, you're actually running this very cynical economy that's doing two things. One is that it's running on the basis of printing money and sending it to rich people. Another way to see that is that the economy is actually losing $20 trillion a year because those are liabilities. Your stock, you know, when the stock market goes up, you're creating liabilities. Equity is a liability on a balance sheet. And so, you know, when basically the total financed value of this financial asset is increasing, what you're seeing is that basically $20 trillion got created out of thin air. Basically, $20 trillion got borrowed out of thin air because those companies now have to justify, in theory, those valuations. So in practice, you know, um, you're looking at this very strange system where... Um, if you set interest rates to basically zero, which is a very strange thing to do, not least because the valuation of fin financial assets um, tends to use equations in which the interest rate is a denominator. And so we sort of have with all of the like, we free money for everyone, everyone's 401k went up, you know, experience of, you know, not just the last two years, but, you know, before this latest, woo, um, but more like the last, you know, I mean, since Alan Greenspan, right, you're basically watching this sort of huge red ink factory, and you're seeing a nation that is basically living pretty much on debt, like a very rich person who's so rich that he can just keep borrowing. And so, you know, that sort of experience of a nation living on debt sort of does a couple of things. It's obviously very destructive to the real economy, not that there is much of a real economy left. But, um, it, you know, it does a lot of damage to the real economy. Um, but also from a financial perspective, it causes all assets to basically you have to, you know, move, you can't just hold cash, you have to move your money around in such a way that it benefits from this, you know, beneficent force. And so it basically makes everything want to get out of cold dollars into things like, you know, index funds. You know, we have this interesting concept of passive investing, which is in total defiance of all economic theory. You know, the reason you invest is that you're adding value to the market, right? <laughs> or you're lending. But like passive investing is like, you know, we, I have an index fund and it magically goes up. And everyone can somehow make a profit right, off right, of that. Right, right, right. And so basically, like, you know, but the one thing money doesn't want to be is just plain cold dollars, because just plain cold dollars don't participate in this, except in the event of the expansion motor turns off when the whole thing begins to rapidly collapse, as, you know, it's done a bit of this year. Okay. And then you really want to be holding cold, cold hard cash. Which right. brings us perhaps to another topic, which is a competitor money. Yes, exactly. And scene. and so and so, you know, the ability to um you know, just the fact of the dollar supply inflating inflates the potential demand assuming even just assuming a sort of constant influx for this other money. And so basically what you're seeing is you're seeing that the whole dollar system when it's expanding like this and it needs to expand because the economy is losing money. You need to like to generate consumer spending. You need to be printing new money by giving it to boomers and their retirement accounts. Right. And so, you know, if this system like uh, I mean, like it can't like what you're seeing right now, for example, with the Fed raising interest rates and creating a recession, it's like basically there's a sort of a game of chicken. Like how hard can they do this before 
like they realize that, I mean, they see another 2008, right? Right. And if they see another 2008 in the presence of inflation, are they going to chicken out and just say, you know what? Actually, Putin did the inflation. We can correct the numbers. We'll add a Putin, you know, fudge factor, right. and the real inflation will be, you know, one percent again because it's like Putin is not included, right, right. <laughs> or something like that. I don't know, but but the like, can they get out? You know, it's a hard problem for the Fed because they have this dictum of like affecting consumer prices. It's really it's just a mess. The point is, this thing loses money. And to take something that structurally loses money and say, okay, you're going to run at break-even is really, really hard. Right. So you can basically bet that this attempt to raise interest rates is going to fail and fail reasonably hard. Okay. Um, okay. So that said, I do have invest investment advice for <laughs> right now for everyone out there. Um, you know, there's a current. It's a. It's a. It's 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 the dollar. It's it's cash. I, I recommend cash. Interesting. Uh, even uh, though even though you just went through how it's it's, it's yeah. A, it's I, a leaky but bucket. but I but I don't think we've exactly hit that wall yet. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, fair enough. And so when things are contracting, you know, basically cash is a great investment because everything is going to contract relative to cash, including Bitcoin. And this basically leads us to the sort of the point of like what causes these crypto you know winters, Uncle Yarv. Uh, you know, and um, don't they suck? Yeah, they kind of suck, but. They suck because uh, they suck for people who basically deserve it. So, like, you know, I think one thing that many people have said is it's like the sort of, you have the Bitcoin holders and the Bitcoin tourists. And, you know, when crypto winter comes, the tourists depart. And what a tourist really is, is someone who's not actually saving in Bitcoin. For example, he's borrowing dollars to buy Bitcoin. Right. That is not saving in Bitcoin. That is speculating on Bitcoin. And that makes him basically a weak hand because if Bitcoin goes down, he's going to get it as margin call. OK, so you're and, not so you you do not save in Bitcoin. Uh, no, saving in Bitcoin is like basically being a naked long Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people do that now. right? Yes, a lot of people do that now. But a lot a, a lot of other people will do things like, oh, I'll have Bitcoin. I'll like lend it to someone for a yield. Right. You know, so you have this have or, you know, have this whole sort of fake DeFi economy where, you notice know, like, wow, I see a lot of lenders, but no borrowers like and when you see a, like financial system with like lenders and no borrowers like you're like oh i see right you know okay and and um you know like it's it's uh i mean you know that white powder on under your nose could be salt right you know <laughs> but uh, okay okay so so money is the bubble that doesn't pop right it pops it's a bubble, but it's, it could also not pop, and then it could become money. Right. It's a contingent outcome. And so there's a world in which basically, you know, the um, world's uh, stock markets sort of turn into more and more of a mess. For example, they just start, like, going down permanently the way Japan's did for 30 years. Like, the Nikkei peaked in the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, you have um, – it could be that – we hit a recession so hard and so like more abundant that actually you get to this sort of Japanese level where even zero entry, you get the zero bound problem as they call it, and, you know, uh, which is that you basically no one wants to borrow because everything is contracting. Okay. And um, then you're like, well, we could pay people to borrow money and like crazy shit like that starts happening. You're really, you so the point is that, that there's a lot of, um, 
there the scenario under which the monetization of Bitcoin or possibly a competing currency uh, continues is it requires savings to keep flowing in that direction. And what we see in the crypto, these crypto crashes is that basically all of the weak hands not only get flushed out, but get like, you know, they will never sit, you know, it's like Mark Twain said, you know, a cat that sits down on a hot stove will never sit down on a cold stove again either, right? You know, and, and these people are gone. Um, but also the price does appreciate over time. And y- yes. every cycle there's a few more hodlers added who seem sustainable yes right? yes and and the question but but of course when you look at that you have to say well you know is there a limit on the kind of people who would do this can this break out of the libertarian nutcase savings pool can um so you know there are many many credible situations under which you know bitcoin does not become money after all you know of course you know, for example, you look at the health of the exchanges out there. Uh, that's kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, these are big businesses that can afford to pay protection money to Washington, which they do. On the other hand, basically, if some agency somewhere passes an order tomorrow that says banks can't talk to crypto exchanges, think about what happens. Basically, no one can sell their crypto right if you have there's no price and if you have no price you're worth zero and you instantly go to basically the zero equilibrium so this is something you've been writing about for many years now yeah. since you first started observing yeah I, Bitcoin. i'm just i'm just yeah. i'm just like you know it, it, on the one hand in a purely abstract private sector you know uh, um version of the standardization problem with like perfect information with perfect information everybody realizes what everyone else should do tomorrow and does it today and you know it sort of happens instantaneously right right and um so obviously we don't live in the world of perfect information and we live in a very very imperfect world i was actually when i realized sort of the game theory i was like wow if i like post about this like this could happen like tomorrow (laughs) but uh you know we don't live in the the stock market is not a super intelligence uh you know and 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 so you actually have this sort of long complicated it's essentially sort of meme warfare right you know because the only thing that differentiates Bitcoin from J random Bitcoin fork, which you can start tomorrow, is basically the mimetic weight of being the standard. Right. And it's like the problem with trying to overthrow that is, you know, let's say you have Ethereum, which is, um, you know, going to have with proof of stake a lower inflation rate, a lower sort of rate of like miners creating coins that they have to sell. So, you know, miners creating coins that they have to sell to buy electricity is a sort of natural source of sellers. If you don't have a natural, like, you know, a, a pool of four sellers, you know, your, uh, your levitation effect will be better. So maybe that's a case for Ethereum overtaking Bitcoin. There's a world in which that could, that could hmm. certainly happen. On the other hand, it's like the sort of standardization, like... Once that's happened, sort of like the standardization power of the number two is sort of then even weaker against like the number three and the number four. And right. And, and so, you know, and, and, and people who 
I don't think there has yet been like the market understands that whatever the mysterious cause of the valuation of these coins, it has something to do with being a store store of value. Um, and what they don't really understand is sort of, it's really hard to convey the sort of very simple game theory of that, which is just like, think about how much stronger the whole argument would be if simply if Bitcoin and Ethereum were a single store of value, if they were not competing for that role, right? Because the competition makes either of them more unstable because then you have to accept the probability that one will lose to the other in addition to the probability that crypto as a whole mm -hmm. will fail to dominate the world. Well, I guess I'm curious how you shifted your priors over time on Bitcoin because you've made a consistent case, I think, for, for many years now essentially similar to what you just said it's it's a clear position you've hold, you've held and you've emphasized in particular the threat of government crackdown in one yeah. way or another sure. and so i'm just curious if your if your priors have shifted over time because while your position is plausible and and reasonable it does seem that a the price does appreciate consistently over time and b interestingly the government seems increasingly favorable right you have gensler now talking about how it's clearly a commodity this is you know actually a few times he said this there's the lummis bill coming out there's actually surprising amounts of positive signals coming from the government that bitcoin so, is, is likely to be safe and that there's not much effort or energy to to demonize it or to crack down on it so i'm just curious i'm just curious for you for you curtis like at what point do you see these signals of the price appreciating consistently over time of government actually being favorable to it where you switch from saying, you know, before I thought, you know, most likely it would go to zero. Now I have to admit, you know, it's better than a coin flip that it goes to infinity. Um, you know, I really, I, I don't like to, and, and I don't think I ever sort of had a strong estimate on the chances of that. I don't think I'm a good, um, a good estimator. Of course, of and that's that hard. And, but you have and framed it as a binary, so, which I think is yeah, interesting. Yeah, sure. It, it's definitely in the, in the, on, in the limit. <laughs> it's a binary. Um, but who knows where that limit is. I guess I would say that there are quite a few ways of sort of in my imagined worst case scenario it wouldn't be quite as simple as okay this is banned it would be more like something creates a really strong disincentive and the disincentive has a sort of cyclical effect on the price for example you know one of the things you're gonna see certainly um you know, a good example is that, you know, a fair amount of demand for criminals, very conservative, but a fair amount of demand, you know, to hold cryptocurrency is surely fairly dark money of one kind or another. Well, it's fairly straightforward to basically for um, like chain analysis on the blockchain is not that hard. It's not that hard to imagine the banking regulators saying, okay, now we're going to publish the blacklist of addresses, okay, and you can't touch coins that have been through this blacklist. Then you're like, okay, we're going to go from blacklisting to whitelisting. So already in Coinbase for, I think, European users, 
they're now like if you want to send money off um off off out to an actual wallet you have to basically give you have to give the financial the kyc information for that um and so you'll basically start to see it's really easy to imagine a system where, yeah, you have a wallet, but you can't use a wallet that hasn't been KYC'd to you, in which case basically the whole world of like, oh, Bitcoin is, use, is useful for basically gray and black market financial activity completely disappears. And does that affect its sort of potential as a store of value? some ways not in others um you know but it's sort of an example of the way of the ways that if you can sort of hem it in and kind of get it declining because the other thing is that basically if you're speculating on it you can also make money on the way down there are of course bitcoin many financial instruments that allow you to do this and so that also is basically a um it's a sort of, it's, I mean, it's a bubble in the opposite direction. It's a bet in the opposite direction. And so, you know, for example, um, there are also worlds where you can actually manipulate the Bitcoin price by basically flooding the market with futures. And so you flood the market, you know, you flood with the market with futures, the price drops, you buy back, right? You know, this is classic market manipulation. Right. Of course, creating a, creating a future, a Bitcoin future in the paper belt financial system is basically indistinguishable from creating a Bitcoin. So, you know, if, as long as you're willing to have someone hold a naked short, you can still create as many Bitcoins as you like. So there's a sort of, you know, dilution in a sense that's taken up by the conventional financial system. So the Fed, for example, could create as many Bitcoin futures as it wanted, right? Because those futures would be payable in dollars, which the Fed can print, mm -hmm. right? So actually, it's not even correct to say the Fed can't print Bitcoins. The Fed can print Bitcoins. Interesting. So there uh, are these other vectors through which the establishment could essentially yeah, I mean, it hasn't, shut it, down Bitcoin. Yeah, it hasn't even like like sort of, I don't think it's really still even now because these theories are so poorly understood, I don't think it's quite on the central bank's radar as sort of an existential threat in that sense, in the sense of like, how do we keep extracting spendable money from this financial machine when everyone moves their savings out of it? Because basically, I mean, that's sort of the game. The game is that, you know, here is this giant pool of savings and, um, it's possible to basically debase a pool of savings and kind of bleed money out of it in various ways. And there's no free lunch. And if people can get their savings out of that into a different standard that doesn't leak, they will, you know, that will be a steady state. And so you can imagine a steady state in which basically essentially all savings, all financial savings are like, no, we will actually get a better return on Bitcoin than in a stable and durable way than putting them into an index fund. I see. Okay. So you remain uh, very skeptical or cautious around Bitcoin, especially on the threat of government crackdown. No, uh, yeah, there's, I but, think there's, there's, there's right. just, there's a lot of ways that it can get. But you also have some interesting proposals for the Bitcoin community if they wanted to become more politically sophisticated. 
So I wanted to ask you about this. You, you have a fairly well-developed model or proposal, we might even say, for the Bitcoin community well, I mean, on how a, to build a, a proper state around Bitcoin. The, this is, uh, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I think the, my, my BitZion post, I think I uh, made that one public, actually. Uh, yeah. So, um, so let's hear it. Well, um, the, like... <laughs> I was pronouncing it in my mind, BitZion. Bitsion, Bitsion is good. Um, um, but um, yeah, I mean, of course, the sense of anything that is at a layer that can't be destroyed by states is that of a state. And furthermore, many people have pointed out that in many ways, you know, you can say Bitcoin is governed by math. Is it governed by math? Is it governed by the 51%? Is it governed by Bitcoin Core? Um, you know, ultimately, why do we trust Bitcoin and not Bitcoin Cash? Uh, like, ultimately, all of these systems come down to resilient networks of humans. And so there's a sort of proof of stake approach, which is, of course, not highly popular in the Bitcoin um, community. Um, and in some ways, I think, you know, I sort of agree with some of the, you know, fundamental kind of algorithmic critiques that have been pushed at proof of stake, namely the sort of, you know, like the kind of nothing at stake problem and so forth. Um, but the benefit of proof of stake is that proof of stake is in a way the way corporations are run. So you have, um, like, yeah, I mean, you have the shareholders elect a board and the board selects a CEO. Um, there's another direction in which you can take proof of stake, which is, I think, a better direction, which is to make it look more like corporate governance and to sort of embrace the human quality of it rather than thinking of it as a sort of algorithmic structure. And so you can, there's a kind of, um, let's say for example, and this could be you know, implemented fairly straightforwardly today, um, you're like, okay, proof of stake means you um, get to basically vote on propositions like a chain reorganization. So that's basically direct democracy. Um, and that has not been a system of sort of governance that historically has had a whole lot of success. And you might say, well, this is because we didn't have ways that People could, you know, in ancient Athens, could digitally sign or actually, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually, it's a shitty way to run a railroad, as you can easily imagine, by saying that, you know, let's say um, you had uh, the customers of Chipotle vote, depending on how many burritos they ordered this year, on what would be the, the year's new flavor of burritos, or whether the salt content should go up or down, or something like that. Uh, you know, and... and it's just you don't – the principle of the wisdom of crowns doesn't scale very well there. And what's um, – so 
if your goal in designing one of these things is to actually not design the most representative possible organ, but actually just to design the strongest possible organ and the most efficient possible organ, you'll do things rather differently. I can jog your memory a little bit on some of the interesting suggestions you make. Uh, for instance, you basically suggest that the real benefit and attraction of what is called decentralization is actually more like independence. Yes. That decentralization is one path to a truly independent monetary standard. But you propose that there is a different way to engineer that kind of independence, which is pseudonymity, that you can have centralized steering committee, essentially, that yes. governs Bitcoin. And although it's centralized and it's a small group, you can use pseudonymity to essentially make up for uh, decentralization. Right. To, yes. So, so yeah. So, 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 so you're jumping ahead a little bit, but but the point about basically the reason why people care about Bitcoin being decentralized is that simply that they want it to be strong, and they want it to be strong and you know and and upright and and basically virtuous. And again, you know, absolutely, sort of the um, Nakamoto consensus solves these problems in a really beautiful way. But one way to think about Nakamoto consensus and sort of where it takes this alternative digital world is you can imagine thinking about a world in which Nakamoto consensus just is a way to bootstrap this new sovereignty out of nothing. But the question is, if you can bootstrap sort of the Bitcoin Republic, in a sense, out of this, uh, is this actually the best way to run the Republic? Uh, my argument would be that it's not. I certainly, uh, you know, I don't want to wade into like the Bitcoin improvement question. I think that Bitcoin, for example, would be much stronger if they'd, um, as was easily available, built, uh, uh, you know, um, zero knowledge into layer one and because you're going to see that blacklist whitelist attack that i talked about earlier you're going to see a lot of chain analysis basically people have been treating bitcoin as if it was effectively a zero knowledge currency which it certainly is obviously not. is not but you think that could be done you see how that could be engineered uh well sure zcash is like i mean that's that already exists right it just right. exists but it hasn't been able it, it hasn't exists been able in different get, coins yeah. and these yeah. other coins have essentially no probability right. of becoming monetary standards. Right. So basically you have the thing that's needed in a monetary standard in one place and the monetary standard in another place. And so, um, you know, just as an example, uh, you know, one of the things that um, you're like, well, let's try to imagine Bitcoin, but with a king, Bitcoin, but with a CEO, Bitcoin, but with, you know, a Steve Jobs of Bitcoin, who actually had power over the whole thing, but still was not a single point of failure. And when you imagine, you know, the things that you, that sort of can be done with centralized leadership of this sort of distributed monetary state, uh, you know, they're, they're enormous. You know, for example, I was talking earlier about the, um, I was talking about the lack of, uh, you know, privacy in Bitcoin, the lack of computational power in Bitcoin. Um, if these currency, if these, these 
cryptocurrencies became crypto republics with crypto presidents, they could do things like merging. You could say, okay, we are going to basically, we made a mistake by having the computational network and the store of value be different things. We're going to solve this problem by basically merging Bitcoin and Ethereum at the current exchange rate. And, um, you know, engineers go work out the problems. Oh, yeah, we need to fund our operations. But hello, we have this giant monetary republic to fund a centrally directed operation. Again, you know, when you look at, for example, how, of course, many of these like, you know, the Ethereum Foundation, for example, was stocked with a bunch of Ethereum. But because Ethereum is a decentralized organization, something like the Ethereum Foundation can't operate like Apple. It has to operate like, you know, the NSF or something. It has to give out grants. It can't actually be like, no, we're going to hire 10,000 people to make Ethereum amazing in the same way that Apple can be like, we're going to hire 10,000 people to make Mac OS amazing. Right. And, um, and, and there's, a, there's kinds of projects that you just can't do unless you're operating on that kind of serious scale. And so there's all these like hokey, you know, things about all of these platforms where they're just like, wow, that is just technically cringe. And because there's no central government and there's no central guidance. And so when you imagine basically this decentralized organization forming in this inchoate distributed way, but creating the community of interests of everyone who holds Bitcoin. And then if you go from, okay, there's a community of interest, you know, among everyone who holds Bitcoin, that creates a collective action problem. How can Bitcoin act in a way such as to benefit all these people as much as it can? That way of, involve, of acting may involve, you know, taxing them for, you know, like it may involve printing new Bitcoin. It may involve like, and to the extent that they can basically, that this government is actually acting in the interests of the shareholders, which sounds like a very difficult thing, but is actually a completely normal thing on Wall Street. Um, it can do just amazing things. I think a lot of this will sound incongruent to a lot of the current Bitcoiners, but I think there are also some interesting and surprising implications of your model that might actually excite and intrigue some of the Bitcoin maxis. Namely, at the end of your essay, you talk about the prospect of, for instance, um, taking over the altcoins. Like you could, you could yeah. feasibly just go and buy them all up. Exactly, and that's what a merger is, right? And right. so you're like, okay, Bitcoin's you know market cap is you know most of a trillion dollars. Zcash's market cap is like you know seven hundred million dollars. Okay, bam, acquired, done. And these could be hostile takeovers. You don't necessarily the, need to get their voluntary sure, participation. Sure, uh, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, and and so like sort of no one has sort of seen what kind of power can do when exercised on this scale and in this way. And like you have this community of interest, which is the Republic of Bitcoin, whose total net worth is north of half a trillion dollars. You know, um, you've got to estimate that the that in terms of collective spending, on that republic, uh, the right taxation level is probably to charge them one or two billion dollars a year. At that point, there's no more need for like, you know, once you have a centralized organization which is invulnerable and which can be trusted in this way, you um, 
you don't really need a blockchain anymore. You can go back to having a database as long as basically your sovereign organization is so sovereign that like nothing can harm that database. And so, you know, the question of um, like how you create this thing that somehow governs and can defend itself is super interesting because of course it can't be exactly so you're like okay we'll treat bitcoin holding as shareholdership right and we'll say it, in principle everyone who has any amount of bitcoin is a shareholder of bitcoin inc of Bit the republic of bitcoin is a voter in the republic of bitcoin and then we'll say okay most voters don't actually care about issues affecting Bitcoin, whether it's, you know, the block size or, uh, you know, uh, whether porn can be on the blockchain or anything like that. So they actually want to uh, delegate their power upward to some larger holder who, you know, let's say, oh, I want, you know, I trust Coinbase to, to vote for me. So you basically, from there, you kind of delegate power up to a small enough group that is manageable at the top. And that top basically becomes your sort of abstract board of directors. And that board of directors does not govern directly. It selects a CEO who governs and basically evaluates the work of that CEO. And just putting it on that human scale also eliminates a lot of the weird automated attacks against proof of stake. It's like because the loop is actually like simply by having things like discrete elections and so forth, simply by not making this sort of a continuous governance process, you break a lot of strange attacks on, you know, sort of using like abusing stake on the blockchain, right? And so you sort of start to get, you're building a different kind of resilience. And that resilience, you know, ultimately what you can do with any kind of blockchain system, you don't even really need a blockchain for this because you're not really talking about, you're just talking about dig digital signatures. Abstractly, if you have a board that can control some pool of resources simply by releasing digital signatures. Um, you have a board who, if their identities are not known, is very hard to pressure. This is very important because let's say, okay, let's take this to the extreme. Let's suppose you're an organization which is hated by all the governments of the world. You're ISIS. Okay, how does ISIS basically say we are going to establish a consistent, a cryptographic governance hierarchy that would, for example, if ISIS had any Bitcoins, they probably should have, but I'm guessing they didn't. Um, but you never know, you know, um, maybe, maybe, you know what, maybe Satoshi is ISIS, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, wouldn't that be amazing? But uh, the... Uh, <laughs> The the I mean around the same time right you know like 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 Tommy checks out but um, the uh, so uh, you know um, Satoshi's are calling so in any case so if you're ISIS right and you're like basically all the governments all the powers of the earth want to destroy you but you have this organizational structure that was dictated by you know you need a caliph right. 
So, and, you know, people swear their allegiance by yacht to the caliph. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I know anything about this, but, um, you know, the, um, when I was with a, never mind, but, um, the, <laughs> <laughs> The so who appoints the caliph, right? And the thing is, if you have basically anonymous trustees who are just like, I have a key, I know a number, I can sign a thing, and if seven, you know, out of eleven of these respected Islamic scholars or whoever they are, you know, agree on the next caliph, that's the caliph, and like nobody has to be able to find these people. And because it's very easy to be out on the internet and drop a signature, drop a transaction on to the network. So you can actually build basically ISIS governance on the blockchain, right? And then you can actually say no, I mean, in Ethereum, you could build this. You could basically be like, you know, seven out of 11, you know, Islamic scholars can appoint the caliph. And the caliph has control of the caliph contract, which allows him to, you know, dispense the, the resources um, and um, and there's really nothing anyone could do about that beyond basically trying to segment this off from the conventional financial system. Okay, it's it's and, fascinating. And and so you know that having a governance structure where I say, okay, I instead of putting my faith in this distributed pool of hashes, which is subject to 51, it's not. God, it's like subject to 51% attacks of various kinds, I'm actually going to put my faith in this invisible company that no one can find and no one can destroy, and that a lot of other people have put their faith in and that controls a lot of assets. And, you know, once you basically have, I mean, if you imagine, like right now, Bitcoin has a collective action problem, you're like talking about all the you know, people in Washington, it's bribing. It's like, you know, it's just obvious that it should be paying 10 or 20 times as many bribes as it's paying, excuse me, bribe. it should be, it should be working, working on the hill, like, you know, much more than it is now. And the sums of money that are put into lobbying as respects the interests of the whole Bitcoin Republic are clearly under-optimized. Hmm, okay. Right. If so, if again, if if you had, if the Bitcoin Republic could govern itself and sort of act as a collective, it would be much better at defending itself. It would be much more powerful. It would certainly not have any interest in like censoring transactions or whatever a centralized, you know, thing can do. Because remember, even a centralized, you know, non-blockchain thing can't forge a transaction, right? And all it can do is censor spends. And so you're basically seeing something that would actually be more worthy of your trust than the like, oh, a 51% attack is impossible way of thing, or you know, thinking about the problem. There's nothing, I mean, could there be a hackable thing in Bitcoin that would allow an inflation attack? Things like that have been found before they were, you know, uh, and I think, you know, not all that long ago either, right? You know, and so the, like the, the sort of process of people don't naturally think about what a Bitcoin Republic or an Ethereum Republic could do. They're not, they're like, oh, just, you know, we got to set the block size or some technical parameter or vote on this or whatever. The idea of this organism actually like 
defending itself mm. what uh, do you, through what? collective action is like just unknown to people. And then, of course, once you have something that can defend itself, you know, it develops it's sort of more and more substance and more and more meaning. It starts to think for itself and eventually it might even wind up acting. What do you think about countries like El Salvador and the governments that are at least trying to take this seriously and build around Bitcoin? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, I have no contact with the government of El Salvador. Um, I understand um, it has beautiful beaches and volcanoes. There's a volcano or something. Um, you know, it's certainly interesting for sovereign actors to play around with this layer. Um, you sort of want those sovereign actors to be as stable as possible. And you're certainly seeing El Salvador, of course, being a third world country is financially dependent on the um, global economy and the global financial system. And so it's pretty easy to squeeze its balls, which uh, I believe is what is happening. And so, you know, the thing is, you don't want to the mistake that people working with sovereignty always make is they kind of take it too seriously and they're like, we're sovereign. Well, you know, like you can sort of get somewhere with your fake sovereignty, but you've got to recognize that it's basically fake and work from there. And so, you know, the capacity, uh, I don't know, there's, it's an interesting experiment. Um, I wouldn't be astounded to see it develop into something in, you know, interesting i wouldn't be astounded to see it collapsing gloriously okay fair um, enough it you, is latin america after all that's true so you mentioned before that if crypto people were serious about governance they would be spending way more money now if we look at someone like Sam just Bank as a just as a collective just as a collective action problem right um, um, yeah, the, as a collective action problem, the correct collective action for all holders put together is clearly to is clearly to spend more money on, on rent on, on, um, um, contributing to. Economy. So let's, let's, let's analyze some, some possible early examples of this. So if you look at someone like Sam Bankman fried, mm -hmm. who's, you know, a prominent kind of crypto nouveau riche, he mm -hmm. is pledging Absolutely. to give uh, up to a billion dollars to Democratic candidates in 2024. He's also funding things like a uh, pandemic prevention institute uh, by proposing to hike taxes in California. So what do you make of the current efforts you see? Well, uh, as, I, as, I, as, I under, as I understand, I'm not acquainted with Mr. Bankman-Fried, but uh, as I understand it, uh, he's something called uh, an effective altruist. And uh, I happen to believe that the most effective, uh, well, the effectiveness of anything is proportionate to the amount of power that you put in. And so the most effective way to be an effective altruist is to um, focus your philanthropic efforts on turning money into power. And so when you don't understand that and your philanthropic efforts are actually focused on helping the human race or something you're actually not helping the human race as much as you could if you spent your power on more power hmm. you see you know it's like the old thing give a man a fish and he eats for a day teach him to fish right so you know give him a thing you know he eats for a day but give him the power to get a thing 
you know, he'll keep having that thing. And then if you give him power to get more power, that's the way to do it, right? So the thing is, to the extent that, um, you know, Mr. Bankman-Fried appears to be under the thrall of the um, present political authorities, uh, he is unlikely to be using his fortune in as cynical a way as he possibly Okay, so short of bootstrapping a Bitcoin state, what types of activities do you think crypto billionaires should be spending their money on? I think they should be spending their money and my spreading spreading it evenly across um, the United States Congress with a special um, 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 attention, uh, you know, to the uh, finance committees and so forth. Okay. Um, I think they should be spending it on good old fashioned uh, lobbying. Yeah, good old fashioned lobbying. Just, just you know, which is just making friends. You know, yeah. it's just it's not. It's just yeah. making friends. Right, right. You wrote once that you said today the only thing that matters on the blockchain are a utility tokens, including rights tokens like the classic NFT, and b the race to become the digital future standard store of value. We already talked about store of value. So I'm curious to know the Curtis Jarvin perspective on NFTs. Specifically, the way I would phrase it is, in the long run equilibrium, after all the hype cycles you know, uh, fizzle out, what is the role or function of the NFT in an advanced digital economy? Well, it depends on what that NFT is a right to. Um, you know, saying, you know, the future, you know, in the past rights were held on a pieces of paper if you have an automotive uh, vehicle you have a title to it probably somewhere which is a piece of paper i don't know what happens if you lose the piece of paper um but i wouldn't want to try um and so people are used to like sort of clutching their precious pieces of paper and an nft is just an you know it's like saying what are nfts worth it's like saying what is what are pieces of paper worth and to the extent that those represent assets ownership of assets in the real world, like a car or Picasso, or um, they represent, or even a house, or they represent, I mean, my God, I imagine uh, putting, uh, you know, land titles on the blockchain. Oh, many, shit, uh, many, many, yeah, this is a serious problem with you. Yeah, many, I'll many, many have, many, uh, you know, a man wants to gesticulate and should hang over my head yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, 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 it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. And so, you know, the question of what, NFTs are worth or what they mean depends ultimately on what they represent. Uh, certainly, if the DNS were being created again today, it would use a blockchain representing the rights to use a name. So there are various, you know, attempts at that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's like the idea of buying an NFT because it's an NFT is like buying a like share of stock because it's a share of stock, you know, and um, it's sort of very, it's very unclear when you look at sort of NFTs for specifically of like, that are intended to create something like an artistic collectible market. There are some, you know, which are intended to basically create um, paid entry social, social groups, which is a great idea. Um, there are, um, but, you know, to what extent those things will sustain themselves and, you know, survive over time. I mean, um, uh, what was the, um, 
um, crypto kitties. You know, what are crypto kitties worth these days? Do people still trade crypto kitties, right? I, you know, yeah, you don't know, I don't know, but it's funny, right? So, you know, if it's funny, that gives you that gives you a hint, right? So, you know, what's really the difference between a crypto kitty and a bored ape, right? It's like basically you get an you have a natural sort of structure where the there's a sort of emotional inflation of the bubble on the way up and then a corresponding emotional deflation on the way down and things without a whole lot of sort of substance can't really handle that deflation and so will often deflate all the way to zero i mean it's like when you have a community a limited access community token um, like that, it's like basically, if there's one thing internet communities tend to do, it's die, and, and and you know once the basically the signal dwindles to zero, the token will also go to zero, and so you know that's a that's an outcome for that. Of course, um, you know what actually things will people want to collect in what ways an nft for a physical object in the real world is just another way of recording ownership and one that can certainly deviate from the physical ownership creating interesting consequences and yeah i mean i i like um uh, i'm i'm a sucker for schemes that involve embedding like tamper-resistant keys and physical objects. I like, you know, everything like that is something that I like. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, it's just a tool and it depends what they represent and who wants what they represent. All right, why. sensible. So it sounds like you did not buy a CryptoPunk. Um, no, what is, yeah, no, I did not <laughs> buy a CryptoPunk. Okay. So the final thing I want to ask you about is the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. You've written a little bit about mm -hmm. how to optimize DAOs. You, you right. Seem so to this is this is part of the same thing that I talked a little bit a little bit about earlier. So one of the things that these DAOs always go for is they go for the direct democracy, which is basically not the way to create the most functional possible organization. I mean, imagine like SpaceX is like a direct democracy of like rocket enthusiasts, right? You know, um, um, I mean. My God, like you know, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be anywhere near the launch pad, right? You know, and and so the basically ability to say, oh, I'm sort of going to put aside the like fun of like nerding out over like you know votes on the blockchain size or block size or whatever the hell, um, is basically turns into no, this is a collective action problem, and we want to act collectively as effectively as possible. Therefore, we all want to put the bread pull the breadcrumb in the same direction. And so the basic problem of saying, okay, wow, instead of having all the shareholders vote of Chipotle vote on the new Chipotle flavor, maybe they could vote to elect a CEO. No, that's actually too much democracy. Uh, maybe they could vote to pick a group of people that picks the CEO. And you'll notice that actually there's another... Um, Besides corporate governance, of course, there's another well-known system that works exactly this way. Um, it's called the U.S. government. And in fact, you can look at the Electoral College as this sort of crude attempt to basically build sort of something like what I call an accountable monarchy. And, you know, of course, it never worked like the <laughs> right but it was there for a reason it wasn't there to become a like an empty formality and it was there to basically you know um implement this new form of 
governance that a lot of these Puritan merchants already had some experience with and saw that basically running organizations this way really worked very well. And so you can basically say it's like, you know, Ethereum would be a fine example. You have in like a proof of stake system, you have a voting system there already. But if you basically vote for trustees who pick a CEO, the power of that CEO to manage the whole system is just like immense and it's a totally different world from having like a bunch of committees and like give grants for like quasi art projects or whatever you can basically be like no we're gonna have you know 75 engineers create the perfect ethereum mobile app you know like you can actually put centralized energy into it um, I was going to mention Mozilla as an example of something a little like this, but, um, you know, some questions about that organization. But, um, the, um, um, but I mean, if you imagine Mozilla sort of trying to get off the ground by, like, grant funding a browser, like, it would never have happened, right? You know, and, and so... So you, what is the lesson from Mozilla? The lesson from Mozilla is that basically... There are certain things that you can only do at a, with a centralized organization of a certain scale. You could not imagine Intel designing the next family of x86, chi x86 chips by becoming the Intel Foundation and giving out grants on GitHub for people who like found instruction sets cool. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and and so it, it's it's like it's just a completely different scale of operation, and we have this net this intrinsic natural human anarchist attraction to these unstructured things. And we love them, and then we're and they're beautiful, and we just forget how much more effective an army is than a mob. Right. And so the thing is that what people are looking for truly in their decentralization is not that it's a decentralized thing with no nervous system and no brain. It's that that decentralization creates effective independence. So, but if you can create that independence in other ways, then you can actually have something much more powerful. So that's great. So we still have a little bit of time. So tell us a little bit about the specific architectural suggestions that you make in your article about optimized. So, so basically, you want something that's sovereign, that's, that's completely defensible. And in order to be completely defensible, the ultimate power, not necessarily the operating power. You know, you can have, you know, okay, maybe it's the, if it's the ISIS caliph, you, 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 that that identity should be a secret as well. But no, I mean, the identity of the ISIS, the, today you can go on Wikipedia and see who the ISIS caliph is, right? You know, um, how he's chosen, his mystery is, of course, is where he is, but, um, you know, he's still an identified person, right? So ideally, of course, you don't want to be in an adversarial relationship toward the powers that be. You just want to be like, okay, you can't mess with me and I don't mess with you. You want to be imperceptible. You want to be not necessarily imperceptible. You want to have, you want to be kind of have a, have a kind of stable neutrality. You want to be, you know, seen as just sort of a feature of the world that doesn't go away. Right. And, um, and so, but also the idea of like exerting pressure on this thing has to be almost impossible. You were pretty and, specific in talking so, about NFTs, and I, I'm right. Sure, yeah. So, 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 so basically, 
I mean, NFT is just a key that you have, yeah. right? So ultimately what you want is you want the ultimate sovereignty, not necessarily the operating sovereignty, but the root of sovereignty to land, to, to reside with a like low double digit number of anonymous trustees. And you don't want actually, you really don't even want these people colluding. You don't want them acting on a regular basis because you don't want them to be part of the management loop. Corporate governance is not corporate governance, it's corporate accountability. Ideally, the board does nothing. And, you know, in some companies like in like Facebook Meta, the board is vestigial. Zuckerberg has all the voting power, there is no board. And so the, um, like, this is your mechanism for just, you know, you're like, okay, you know, let's say it's the board of Ethereum. Obviously, you know, Vitalik is going to be the Steve Jobs of Ethereum. He's going to be the CEO. Maybe he gets a brain tumor and needs to be replaced. Maybe he discovers girls and, I, you know, I, I don't know what could happen, right? He's probably discovered her. But, you know, but, but um, the, the, you know, he could go off the rails, right? But he's not likely to go off the rails. And so what you have in these trustees is you have a group of people who this is not their lives. They're just there to basically make sure everything is sane. They don't sort of have a reason to like get together and argue with each other. They just like will meet occasionally to make sure everything's okay. And then if the CEO like dies or something or is, you know, arrested, then obviously it is, you, it, need a new, you need a new CEO. Is it essentially the same exact thing as you were proposing for the Bitcoin state or is it different, yes. is it different yes. at all? Yes. And, and so, um, so you have these anonymous trustees and basically they have a certain ethos under which they operate. Ultimately, it has to come down to such an ethos. But if you have a distributed group of people who don't even know each other, who don't know each other's identities, all they have is this ethos and they don't have any kind of continuous process that could like bias them in any particular way. So you are getting kind of a wisdom of crowds there if your crowd is very well selected. So the way you basically, and, and if you hold one of these keys, one of these NFTs, whatever it is, the ethos is basically nobody knows your identity. If your identity is disclosed, you need to pass the key on to someone whose identity only you know. Um, you need to basically, like, your lawyer has an envelope in the event of my death, you know, here's who gets the key, right? And so you really have this world where nobody knows and could imagine knowing what this identity is as soon as it's gone through sort of one phase of anonymization there. This group of people, you know, they don't know each other's identity. No one knows who they are. They might as well be a force of nature. Yeah, you talk about the first board is elected in a kind of public reputation yes. uh, game, just like any electoral politics. Sure, or any like then, proof, delegated proof of stake or right. anything but, like but that. But once right? that first elected board uh, is elected, they then in private and in secrecy Choose. Uh, nominate the next board, which is the functioning board. Yes. yes. And and so and so you get this group of people that is just like they they're sort of they're all bearing you assume that most of them are basically good. They don't really have an opportunity to collude. They don't have a motivation to collude. They would be like, if one of them comes to like collude, you know, someone's like, ah, maybe we should form a little cabal. You'd be like, wow, that's weird. I'll tell everyone else about that, right? You know, and um, the, um, and so the sort of the, the centripetal forces that would cause that to centralize and cause it 
to basically not operate as a backup mechanism, but to operate basically as a junta governing itself, aren't even really present. Mm -hmm. Nobody really has an incentive to even try starting to do that. So the system stays basically, it stays not decentralized, but just simply redundant. And that redundancy where basically, yeah, you know, well, one of these keys get lost, well, one of them, you know, whatever, maybe. But the redundancy is sort of enough to basically create a system that's really effectively invulnerable. And it's just like, it's really easy to drop a transaction on the internet without anyone knowing where the hell it came from because it's such a vast sea of, yeah of it's such a vast it's a few bit it's a few bits in a vast sea right and so then basically you know as long as they can replace the ceo the ceo really can't be coerced because basically he would have to be like coerced in secret but then whatever he was doing would be in the real world basically it be as, a soon secret. As, as soon as the ceo is compromised or becomes inadequate or yeah the ceo is just replaced then they you basically can, you just, can arrest the caliph you just get a new caliph right well, they, well it would it would be like they the the board could just um invalidate the key that's that right belongs that's right. to the that's right to the ceo right that's right and so basically when you look at um um then you start to see okay to what extent can i operate an organization entirely in crypto space um then you sort of segue into okay you know can we imagine this as a real world governance structure and one of the things the fun things about imagining it as a real world governance structure is there's, there's a sort of real um world um it's sort of the reverse of an oracle, I guess you could say, which is called the permissive action link, which is used currently only on nuclear weapons. And basically, the nuclear weapons will not fire unless you have the right key. And so, you know, there's no, um, you know, I know how much gun people love smart guns, and I know how much they love, like, networked guns, but this isn't like... This is a military, folks, right? This is like, and so, you know, you can easily imagine a military which cryptographically is forced to obey the chain of command. Either that or use its guns as clubs, right? You know, and so you actually have, you know, weapons at all levels. You have a whole military armed with weapons that won't work unless the cryptographic chain of command is correct. And that would be governed by this secret uh, pseudonymous board. Right, ultimately. Right. right. And so basically, you know, there you have sort of, you know, the end-to-end -end chain of like, okay, this is an accountable monarchy in the real world that would be very hard to displace with any particular force. And it's not even totally anti-democratic in the sense that you do reserve the, the function of the, the populace to at least recall the board whenever. Well, they... yeah, that's one thing. I mean, if you want to, if you want to put that safety, you know, of course, one man's you know safety net is another man's catastrophic <laughs> risk, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But but you can of course put safety nets like that in if you're concerned with okay, you know, what if this somehow becomes dystopian in a way that we can't imagine? But I mean, there's there's nothing dystopian about this design. It's just. Um, you know, it just sounds dystopian. Okay, fascinating, fascinating. Well, I want to give you some time to get to your next appointment. Well, Curtis, thank you so much. Curtis Yarvin, graymirror.substack.com. That's gray with an A, the American way. Thank you so much, Justin. All the ideas we discussed today came out of that newsletter, so I recommend people go check All it right. out. All right. Thanks, Thanks Curtis. So
that's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end. So you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.